My product of the week this week is experience. It's funny being a makeup artist with over 30 years of doing makeup artistry, how much the students that I've taught over those years have taught me and shown me, and how much experience I've gleaned through being a teacher as well as being a professional makeup artist. So this week I thought rather than just showing you another product or talking about another product to go shopping and clutter up your kit with, it would be good just to reflect on some of the experience cards that have been shared experiences from students I've taught, and I'm going to share those with you this week in three sections. I hope you enjoy them. Working as a professional educator, I get to see close up and hands on the issues that students face and some of the common mistakes. And I thought this week it would be really great for those of you with less experience if we shared some of those learnings and experience cards and some of the things through the eyes of a teacher that I see that the students commonly fall into errors and mistakes. So I'm going to break that into three sections. You may want to grab a pen or pencil if you're studying makeup. This might be really helpful for you to avoid some common mistakes. And I'm going to give you my top 10 mistakes for eyes, lips and face. Okay, we're going to look at the common mistakes on eyes. And the first one is something called bitch brow. It really is where people that are trying to create a brow go too dark. One of the common mistakes is actually making the eyebrows just too dark so they steal focus. It could be that you make the eyebrows too dark for a bride, so it's here comes the brows, as opposed to here comes the bride. Or it could be that you just lost control of the tone you were aiming for, or maybe you were using a brow pomade and you lost control or you used too much and too much product equals too dark, too dark equals too much focus. And remember the eyebrow is supposed to give you a natural impression or a stylistic approach. So generally if you're trying to do beauty makeup or classical makeup, make sure that the eyebrow is within the actual colour scheme and the tonal values of what you're doing and not too dark. Now obviously you could go deliberately bitch brow for a dark, dramatic, gothic editorial statement, but if it's not your intention, watch out for that. Number one mistake, eyebrows too dark. Now the second one is not actually noticing that the eyelids are oily. This is a common mistake. Before you start doing eye makeup, you really want to take a second of observation just to check the eyelids to see if they're oily or shiny. If they are, you can take a watercolour brush which will reduce the amount of powder you use and just do a veil of powder over the eyelids to minimise the shine. This means that you'll have confidence later on that there's no creasing issues and that you started on a really good matte base. So make sure you've taken a second to have a look and see if you're going to run into that problem. If you're actually thinking that it's something you would forget to do, it might be good practice just to put that into your sort of routine, that each time you start an eye makeup, you do a very sheer veil of powder across the eyelid just to reduce any risks of oiliness or creasing at later stages. And that's definitely something I see the students miss and later they regret it because when I sort of investigate how calm the actual eyeshadow is creased or is breaking down, we establish that they worked on an oily lid and hadn't done sufficient prep. So there's something to watch out for, an oily lid. Now unless you're doing fashion editorial makeup where you may be doing something grunge based and you want something deconstructed on purpose, my next bugbear when I'm looking at students and one of the common mistakes is not using a tight liner. A tight liner really is a way of making sure that all your finesse and edges are perfect for close-up camera and for HD camera. So the waterline, this is the inner rim of the eyelid, needs to be perfected. Now generally my go-to would be a beige foundation coloured eyelid colour. So that's going to be a pencil maybe like a Walk of Shame from Urban Decay inside the waterline to make sure the tight line is water resistant and perfected. Or it could be black for a smoky eye or brown. Or it can be a fashion colour if you're doing a colour makeup or a rainbow eye. But the key thing is the use of a tight liner 
really ensures that those really fine details are perfect on close-up camera and make sure that you get right into the tear ducts and right under the top lashes and right inside the bottom waterline. It really does make a difference to the finesse and it stops you having a raw edge that actually if you're sort of looking at the shoot of a smoky eye and the eye goes upwards towards north you can see that mist trick under the lashes where the tight line hasn't been sufficiently darkened. So watch out for tight lining and for photographic makeup and on-camera makeup make sure that it's always there. You'll always thank yourself for putting it in and another tip is I always put that in before I start the eye makeup to reduce any later stage risks of eyes watering and even giving it to the model to do. When a model does her own tight line or a client does their own tight line you'll probably find they'll put more pressure on the actual product to get more payoff and they'll do it faster than you as the makeup artist. It's okay to hand over control, you can fix it if they go slightly wrong, there's no other eye makeup there but they will probably do a better job than you and faster and time being of the essence as a professional makeup artist that's one moment while they're tight lining you can get your organized station ready for the next steps. Number four of my common mistakes for eyes is shape control. Often when I'm observing students, they have a concept of the shape they're trying to achieve, but they can't visualize it, or they're not trying to work on the symmetry of it, or build that up. One of the things I think when you're working with shape control is to try and go into something which I call ghost mode, which is to try and work it out in a much more sheer shape before your final shape, so that you can work on things like your placement and your symmetry, and actually establish the shape you're going for and be able to visualize the two eyes at the same time symmetrically. So if you take an approach by you're using a softer color than you'll end up with, you can start building up your shape control and actually then you can build on it when you're more confident and the shape is more successful. If you go for a shape that is not successful too early, you'll be spending all of your time fixing it, trying to correct it, and the students that take this approach get frustrated, they get disheartened, and you can feel them almost burning alive as they're trying to manage this shape that's got out of control, and it can often feel like they're just pushing jelly uphill. So the key thing here is, if you work sheer and you build on that sheer shape, you'll end up with a much more successful, confident shape control. How many times do I see students and they've got the models with the eyes closed? It's a case of eyes wide shut. If you allow your client to fall asleep, because it can be relaxing doing makeup, or close the eyes, it's going to give you a really horrible wake-up call. When the eyes are opened, the see-through lookout position of how the eyes rest in the natural resting place is going to be different. So any eyeshadow you've applied and any shape control or shape placement you've done will be thrown out as the eyes move north. So essentially, whenever I'm working on an eye, I'm trying to actually have the eyes wide open and have the client looking through the makeup, looking out at it at me, so that I can see exactly the placement of like the cut crease or the area that I'm taking it north of the crease to make sure that it fits perfectly and that it really does feel like it's fitting onto the bone structure. This is a really common mistake where you think logically to have the eyes closed, but that can actually give you less tension, the eye placement can be wrong and actually you don't have the right position when you start looking for your elevation. And so I always advise you, don't let the client work with the eyes closed while you're working. If the eyes are closed, they should be looking down and it should be giving you tension. They should be open but looking to the floor. So the lid canopy does give you tension against the brush. But if they close, it gets a little bit teabag, it gets a little bit scrunched up in there and the eyes will actually then find their path through the brush and it can give you some problems in terms of payoff and lay down and making sure that the textures are smooth. So make sure you get tension, make sure you keep the eyes open looking out at you and make sure you avoid eyes wide shut.
Another common mistake on eyes is just simple symmetry. The best way to resolve this is to centre yourself directly in front of the nose and as you're working look left and right and keep your horizontal gaze on the eyes you're working at to make sure that you have got your eyes on the north, south, west and east of that symmetry line that you're trying to create. I always say to my students try and plant yourself, almost visualise the Eiffel Tower, how solidly rooted that is and place your legs a little bit further apart so your feet are slightly more balanced, you've got more control, you're planted and you're centred and then you can actually find your way through the symmetry. Keep casting your eye to the left side of the face, to the right side of the face, and then you'll actually be able to make sure that you're actually working your way and mirroring what you're doing. Mirror symmetry does take skill and it is something that is a real learned art, but if you take your time and you centre yourself and stand directly in the middle, then you're definitely going to have the best shot at creating a mirror symmetry. The next common mistake when you're working on eyes is the transition wing blend. Now when a student is trying to pull an eye out and give it a winged eye effect, they often visualise a wing so they create a triangle. It's almost like the brush identifies that the need of an eye to go out is a triangle and they start doing this triangular shape. Sometimes they draw it in with a pencil, sometimes they draw it in and map it out with a brush, but essentially once there is a triangle established it's very very hard to remove that. So a tip I've got when I try and create an eye that is winging out and it is actually going out more effortlessly and it has to transition fade, I use again my watercolour brush to establish that mapping and to create the eye position. And once I'm happy with the symmetry, again this is in ghost mode, once I'm happy with the symmetry of the watercolour brush, then I can just simply build up on it and intensify it. The shape edges will already be shallow and then I can go into that shape to create depth and then I've got almost like the idea of shallow water becoming deeper on the inside and the symmetry is preserved and it looks effortlessly blended and it gives you an airbrush effect transition fade out. If you haven't got a watercolour brush, head straight down to the art shop and get yourself one of those. The mop watercolour brush is going to make your blending stardom. It's going to absolutely give you amazing edges, amazing finesse and it will look like you're airbrushing through your natural manual brushes. The next one's a big one. It's the dreaded flick liner. Every time I see a student attempt to flick liner, I almost hold my breath for them before they hold their breath, and then we look at each other and realize neither of us are breathing. It is stressful. The trick with a flick liner is to identify the elevation line. The best way to do this is to start on the outside of the eye and come from 90 degrees around the side of the face, so you're facing the ear. If you actually can visualize the elevation line, you can see the space and see the potential to flick. So essentially I'm standing right in front of the ear, not the front of the face, and I've got my eye on the target and I can see the amount of space that the flick can take. And then I create the flick drawing into the centre of the eye, coming from the outermost point and going inwards to the centre of the eye. Then I reverse around 180 degrees to the other ear, so the other ear is now in front of me, and place my line again as I did previously on the other eye, starting on the outside and drawing inwards to the centre. Once you have those two symmetrical flicks, there is no point doing anything else until they're essentially correct. Once you have those, and you can fix them with micellar water and a Muji Q-tip, then essentially you're done. You've just got to connect and carry that line through towards the tear duct, towards the nose. So my tip for flick liner is to be staring at the ear and working from the side. It's the 90 degree rule. False eyelash placement has to be one of those things that you can just tell immediately is incorrect. When as a teacher you're looking at the model that the student is doing and the eyes are going downward 
I always use the analogy of Kermit the Frog. It literally looks like Kermit. So when you get Kermit eye, it's literally that the lashes have been placed too far over to the outside edge of the eye, so they're descending. The whole point of a false lash is to flick and elevate, to lift the eye. No one's going to thank you for a dropped lash where the eyes are downturned. So essentially, making sure the student glues the lash in the correct position. And this means that they should have been fitted, they should have been cut to size without glue, they should have been dry tested by placing the lash up onto the eye to make sure they wouldn't run too long. And then when you aim for the lash position, I always go towards the center and then literally make my adjustments from there. The center drop really helps you make sure that you avoid as much as possible placing the eyelash too far over to the right hand side or the left hand side of the eye to the outer edge and essentially you're going to gain that flick and elevation so the last lash is elevated. A good way to check this as a student is to put your brush from the side of the nose through the side of the eye and make sure that the last lash is contained and doesn't cross the brush or the Q-tip because essentially then you know that you've elevated and not dropped the eye and made it downturned. So lash placement, a common mistake for novices and starting out aspiring makeup artists. You've done the best eye makeup of your life, you're so pleased with it, the student's excited with it, it's absolutely brilliant, and then they ruin it with under eye control. Dryness, no prep, no eye cream, bad concealer, heavy, claggy product under the eye. Make sure whenever you're working under the eye, you've done all of the relevant stages. You've prepped it with sufficient hydration to make sure the concealer lays down better. If you're using color corrector, that you have hidden that with a good amount of camouflage or concealer and make sure that the under eye is as good as the upper areas that you've done. There's no point showcasing brilliant eye blending techniques and ruining it with very dry, bad concealing under the eye. So when you're working under the eye, make that a maximum goal for skill and finesse that semicircle under the eye so that it never lets you down. So there you go, that's all of the top tips to commonly avoid mistakes that I see when I'm teaching and things that I've picked up observing students over the years. I hope that's really helped on the eye section. Now you might want to take a breather as this is quite a long sort of amount of information or grab your pen again and here we go with the common mistakes and top tips to avoid mistakes for the next section which is lips. Now it should be said that whenever I'm working and teaching I always teach my students to do the eyes first and then the lips and then the base. So we're looking at the lip section and these are the common mistakes that students make when working on the lips. The first one is dryness. Nobody can create a perfect lip on dry lips. What I tend to use is Laneige sleeping mask prep. So while I'm working on the eyes, I will have put the sleeping mask on the lips so that there is sufficient hydration ready for the lip design I'm going to create or the lipstick I'm applying. And then just before I apply the lipstick, I take that sleeping mask away. I blot it down so that there's no more slip. If you apply too much preparation, there is going to be too much slip and your pencil or your brush will skid all over the place. And if you don't put enough preparation, you'll be working on a bumpy, dry, dehydrated lip. And that's going to show in the photographic camera texture. You'll see that on camera. So the key thing is the mistake that the student makes is not prepping the lip sufficiently. The next mistake on lips is payoff. Making sure that you have picked and making sure you've selected a lip texture that has sufficient pigment. Now one of the common mistakes is when the student tries to work with a lipstick that doesn't have much pigment, then maybe they introduce a gloss and maybe it separates or it balls up or you can see it patching. So make sure the key thing is when you're picking your lip texture that you're aware of the texture you're going to create, that there is sufficient pigment and you've got sufficient payoff 
to make sure that you can avoid this common mistake of having patching or an inconsistent texture payoff. The next common mistake on lips is the corners where the actual top lip and the lower lip close and meet. Maybe you haven't taken the pencil in sufficiently or maybe the lipstick hasn't quite got into the corners. Now one of the tricks you can do here is to expose the corners by pulling up the lips using a q-tip or a brush handle. But another good tip here is to take an eyeliner brush and apply the lead from the pencil onto the eyeliner brush and then you've got a much more detailed fine applicator and you can really push that into the corners of the lips to make sure there's no little element missed. So I'm really specific about lip corners and making sure that the product goes straight in and right into the edges of where the lips meet. Have a look at that next time you're working on lips to avoid that common mistake. Another common mistake is not taking red lipstick sufficiently inwards towards the inner zone of the lip, backwards in towards the mouth cavity. The key thing is if you're doing a red lip, you must make sure that the lip is completely red all the way back into infinity from the camera perspective. So you want to make sure that you haven't got a perfectly matte red lip, but the inner zone of the lip has been missed. This is something I spot quite a lot with students. They don't push the lipstick back far enough towards the teeth, and therefore they get this kind of dry ridge or dry patch. So watch out for that and make sure that you make sure that every part of the lip that's visible to the camera is painted sufficiently with high pigment payoff. An area of colour choice can also be a common mistake for lipstick. When you're picking a lipstick, particularly on mature clients, you should really try and avoid things which are too cold or too blue. Now while those colours really do work for editorial or for things which are supposed to be more frozen or to be more edgy, the key thing is with cold colours having blue in, it actually mirrors the actual natural coldness of the lip. So therefore it isn't flattering and generally it's not going to be a good thing for a rejuvenation makeup. If you are working with mature beauty, then you really do need to avoid cold colours. If you're looking for an edge and to make sure something looks more subversive and more edgy, then maybe opt for cold colours. But picking a cold colour when you don't intend to, and a cold colour being something slightly too blue, like a purple lipstick for example, it can really make the teeth look yellow and it can really just not be the right choice. So be careful and conscious when you're really picking your colours. White lipstick is generally just a nightmare. Whenever a student tries to do white lips, it always looks like badly applied Tipex and it's never smooth, never consistent, and it really just looks dry and patchy. Trying to achieve white as a makeup artist in a smooth, perfect lay-down texture is very difficult. So whenever a person is picking white lipstick, you've got to be confident that the texture you're picking is going to look smooth. Generally, a white foundation, something like a silicon-based foundation, is probably going to look better on the lips because it is going to have more hydration, saturation, and give you a more smooth payoff. Anything too dry, like a white pencil or a white lipstick, generally just looks really dusty and can look like correction fluid. So just be careful when you're picking a white lipstick statement. It's a really tricky one to pull off and a common mistake. Another thing which is really difficult to pull off is orange lipstick. If you are having a shot on camera where the model is going to be smiling and exposing teeth, you want the teeth to really look white and bright. Orange lipstick, if the model doesn't have really true white teeth, can make the teeth look quite yellowy. It sort of mirrors the yellow tones of the teeth. And so orange lipstick making teeth look yellow is not maybe the best choice if you're trying to pull off a certain graphic lipstick. There are so many other colours. So a common mistake, unless you can plan for it, is orange lipstick. Watch out for that one. Anyone that's been to House of Glam Dolls knows that I'm a stickler for lip symmetry. I like mirror symmetry and I like you to look at the lip in all directions to make sure that you do have symmetry achieved. The key thing is here, if you don't work symmetrically, 
you're going to be fighting yourself and pushing jelly uphill again. You're going to be trying to save the lip, trying to correct each part, and yet making more problems. Systematic equals symmetry. Think systematic and you've achieved symmetry. That's my top tip. A common mistake when students are doing lips is to save a lip by carving it out using a flat brush and really carving the concealer around the outside of the edge of the lip. Be careful here, if the foundation colour is slightly too light, then you've given yourself an error. The camera will detect that as a highlight, and therefore if the camera can detect a highlight, it will expose you that you have actually saved the lip as opposed to technically created the lip. So watch out for carving lipstick. If the colour is too light, it will highlight, and that will be a common mistake. The final mistake on lips is really just not observing. When you finish the lip, you really want to take a moment to be the camera. Look at the lip you've created. Have a look at it from the straight-on position. Tilt the head slightly down and towards the neck so you can see it from above. Tip the head back so you can see it from underneath and look up under the arches of the cupid's bow. Go to the left, go to the right. And this is the compass rule where you really want to look at the feature from north, south, west and east to really gain the camera angle perspectives on that lip. If you do this, you'll get a much better clarity and viewpoint on the symmetry of the lip and you've actually got a much better idea of how it will shoot on film and on camera. So make sure you just take that moment for observation. A common mistake, students don't look enough and don't observe enough of what they've done to conclude the item they're doing. And now for the third section of these common mistakes to avoid is the face. The first one of these is prep, just not sufficiently hydrating the skin. Now two of the things I would always want to do before I apply foundation is use a peeling gel to make sure the skin is absolutely smooth and polished and then sufficient hydration. Peeling gel is a product I use available from Body Shop. It is a really great product just to rub over the face and it really just does take off all that surface skin that is going to get in the way and give you clogging beneath the foundation. So if you use a peeling gel and then you use the sufficient hydration, your prep is going to be great. If you don't do these steps and you don't sufficiently prep, the laydown of the foundation is compromised and you can't be surprised if the foundation doesn't look perfect and flawless because the prep wasn't, so therefore you're not going to achieve that. This is one of the common mistakes where students rush into the foundation and don't think through the underlying stages before they get onto the foundation brush. The next common mistake has to be colour matching a foundation. You've really got to make sure the foundation colour is correct before you proceed and many, many students get bored mixing colours, they think, oh, it'll be okay, or I'll make it work, or I'll wing it, and of course as a teacher we're waiting for that crash where they get the foundation all over the face and it just looks completely the wrong colour, it looks like it's transplanted onto the neck, it doesn't match, and essentially it's too late, the students now realised way too far down the process line. So when you are colour matching, the way I tend to advise to do it is to find your batch of foundation that you think you're going to be using, swatch it onto the tip of the nose, onto the forehead and onto the throat, three anchor points that you can quickly observe and make sure that the colour disappears in. If the colour is like quicksand and shrinks and disappears into the skin, you've got the right colour. If it doesn't do that and you're struggling and labouring over the blend, it's not the right colour and you can easily make adjustments. Don't go anywhere near painting the foundation on until those three colour matches are done. It's not on the side of the face, I don't tend to use that because it obscures vision. I tend to go right down the central camera line of the face, the forehead, the nose and the throat. It's almost like in the name of this foundation and the Holy Ghost, I hope this colour is right. And then say a small prayer and if it's completely right, it should give you no problems and sink in. Top tip there, just make sure you don't proceed until the colour disappears. 
It's amazing to me when I'm watching students applying foundation and I look at the brushes they're using, I'm thinking, what on earth possessed you to pick up a brush the size of a pit of bread to literally blend foundation on? It's just amazing to me and shocking. The key thing is that you've got to shrink to fit. Whenever you are using a brush on the face, the natural bone structure should determine the size of the brush you're using. So you want to shrink the brush size to the space you're creating and the space you're painting. So I'm always saying to students, shrink to fit, shrink to fit, which is basically take smaller brushes in smaller areas, bigger brushes in bigger areas, and make sure the scale of the brush is fit for purpose. I'm a stickler for ears, they must be painted. One of the key things that bugs me more than anything about being a makeup artist is when I look at makeup artists' work and they haven't continued the foundation and the skin tone onto the ears. Now there are several influencers out there who have really red ears and anyone that comes to the school knows how this bugs me. So essentially it just looks on camera like the ears are transplanted. You must take the foundation colour as if the actual client has been dipped into one consistent colour. So if you're applying a foundation, continuing it down to the neck and onto the ears, all visible skin should be a continuous tone. Watch out for that, it can be a common mistake. Be careful when you're picking your bronzer for your kit. Often students pick bronzers which are too dark and too orange, and they look very unrealistic and unnaturalistic. They don't look like a sun-kissed look or a tanned look, they just look oompa loompa, and you've got to watch out for that orange effect. Make sure the bronzers you put in your kit can't give you that mistake. So Mark Jacobs, Charlotte Tilbury, Bare Minerals, any of those bronzers will give you really good naturalism effects and you're looking for an earthy browning to the skin. You want it to look tanned and sun-kissed, not literally looking like you've been dipped in baked beans. Another common mistake is blusher placement. When you're applying blusher, the easiest thing to do is get the model to softly smile. This will expose the cushion of the cheek muscle, so you can see that on the zygomatic bone, and that should be your landing position for your brush. If you land in the same place symmetrically on both sides, then you're going to have a really good shot at blush placement. So this is something I often see with students' work. They'll have blusher on one side in one position, and on the opposite side in a different position, and there's no mirror symmetry in their blush placement. So watch out for that common mistake. Where you place your blush has to be symmetrical, and go for the same shape on both sides. So map out and work out your landing position for your brush. Be careful of blushes with shimmer. They really can detect and highlight poor skin quality. So if you do have bumps in the skin or blemishes on the skin, opt for a blush that's matte. Don't go for one with shimmer. It's heartbreaking to see students when they pick for something like Nars Orgasm and they take that shimmery blusher all over the cheek and it just exposes maybe where they haven't done a sufficient prep or base lay down and it makes the cheek look bumpy. So watch out for that. Blush with shimmer is a dangerous game. You've got to have absolutely flawless skin with amazing texture to pull off blushes with shimmer. It can really catch you in the light and it can really expose bumps and lumps. So be careful of shimmer and in particular when you're working with blushes with shimmer, be very, very careful. And maybe even to be safeguarded, apply a shimmer blush over a matte blush as a technique and that way you've got a slight bit of protection that the bumps will be softened. When you're thinking of contour, contour should be a cool colour. It should be cold. It should recede the feature. It should not be warm. A warm colour does not contour. It gives you less approach to receding the feature than if you had something with a colder tone. So therefore, when you're picking your contouring palette or your contouring shades or powders, make sure you go for the coldest tones. 
You can also warm them up slightly with a bit of bronzer, but make sure that you start off with a cool tone to create the perfect contour. Nothing looks worse than warm bronzer trying to create a contour. It doesn't succeed, it doesn't recede, so essentially you're struggling to get the recession that you need from the cool tone. Make sure that's something you watch out for, and I think it's very difficult because a lot of times you're going to see on the internet people just saying, contour with blusher, contour with bronzer, and you are contouring, but not the ultimate contour you could achieve. A true contour, in the sense of stage makeup or photographic makeup, should be quite cold. It's heartbreaking to see students when they've finished a perfect makeup and they've done the perfect base to then ruin it by using a baking powder or a setting powder or a Ben Nye powder and it's the wrong colour. Essentially, they've ruined the makeup because on camera now, all that will be detected is a tint that shouldn't be there. So, one of the things I would say here is I'm often saying to students, back away from banana powder. It makes everything look yellow unless you're in that yellow lighting that will actually make it work or on deeper skin. So be very careful about powder shades because they really can ruin the base that you've created. The true tone that you've created can be distorted by the incorrect powder shade. If in doubt, don't use powder at all. Use Fixology Matte or use a fixing setting spray and don't even use a powder to set. It's only one method of setting after all. There are other ways to set a foundation, but the key thing is be conscious not to destroy your beautiful work by picking the wrong powder shade. Once a makeup has been on camera or it's being photographed, it's really important to manage the shine and keep an eye on shine control. So we're going to call this shine control to Major Tom. We all love David Bowie. So we really do make sure that we're going down the central panel of the face, making sure it's mattified, making sure that the sides of the nose are mattified and there's no shine creeping through, or the chin or the top lip. So shine control is one of the areas of diligence where the finesse of the foundation and makeup really must be managed through the shoot. So make sure you're on top of shine and you'll make sure that you get the perfect image on camera. So there you go everybody, we've got 10 tips for avoiding common mistakes on eyes, 10 common mistakes to avoid on lips and 10 common mistakes to avoid on face. 30 tips and experience cards this week on the podcast to really help you shake some of those and avoid some of those common pitfalls. I hope you've enjoyed it, it's been a marathon and I look forward to seeing you next time.